0: you're listening to two therapists in therapy a podcast about
1: self-acceptance self-love and self-growth
0: i'm your host sarah brill a licensed clinical social worker emdr trauma therapist and writer and i'm your
1: other host becca moravac licensed professional counselor licensed marriage and family therapist and enneagram enthusiast i'm a two sarah is a four Hi, Sarah. Hi, Becca. I'm excited because we are recording today. Yes, we are. And we're recording with our friend, Bree Campos, um, who is Body Image with Bree on social media. Um, She is a therapist, coach, and body image educator. Hi, Bree.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me today. Um. So it's really cool because both of you have quite an interesting story that sort of led you to connecting and this awesome interview that we're getting ready to do. So, would you be open to sharing with our listeners about how the two of you met?
1: Yes. Because Brie, where are you? You are located in New Jersey. And I'm in Colorado, and so how did we meet and become friends Um, is Instagram, (laughs) which is wild to me that um, this late in life, I would find sweet, sweet humans in my life on the internet. Um, And yet here we are. Um, But I actually think how Brie and I started talking is a little bit hilarious and telling about our personalities Free?
2: do you want to share? Sure. <laughs> so and and it's funny too because I I know when I started doing therapy and, and my my clients, my young teen clients would be like, Oh, I have friends who live in on the like, you know, so and so we're friends on the internet. I'm like, those aren't real friends. And I have to take that back now because I have real friends on the internet. <laughs> Especially in this time of, you know, quarantine and social distancing. I have made some really good connections on the internet, but <laughs> the way that, that Becca and I had interacted was on a post. I had posted something and I, I misunderstood what she meant. And then I commented underneath it as opposed to like reaching out to her directly. And then she messaged me. She was like, I'm so sorry. This is what I meant. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that's what you meant. And and then we became fast friends.
1: <laughs> yes. We And then we found out that we both lead with a two on the Enneagram. And we laughed that we responded in a very two way. Um, and not that other personalities also wouldn't respond that way. Um, but it felt true that we were apologizing, literally went back and forth. I don't know, probably 20 times. You're like, no, I'm sorry. No, I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> we definitely <laughs> liked. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, and I think I mean there was there had it was on the heels of something that had happened um on the internet where you know I, I think I just was feeling a little bit on edge. And yeah. rather than checking in with that, I just had my defenses up of like, what are you coming for me on my post? And I was like, no, I literally asked in the caption for people to give their
1: <laughs> advice. <Yeah. laughs> oh. But that's a connector for Brie and I and and for Sarah is that um, we are therapists who take a health at every size uh, perspective um, and approach to ourselves and to our clients. And so it was a great connector um, to us. And yeah, I'm really excited for you to be here to talk about your um, your journey with self-acceptance.
2: Thanks. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Sarah, do you want to, or I'll start, I'll start us with my question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I think how we start every episode and every question, but it still is my favorite question to this day is, Brie, what is your working definition of self-acceptance?
2: that's such a good question. My working definition of self-acceptance is that I don't have to like it. I don't, it it doesn't have to be something I I love. It just is what it is. And I I think there's this common misconception in society that like acceptance is like, yay. Um, But truly it's just, yeah, this is, this is what it is. And does the way that I respond to myself bring me closer to the values that I hold? And so the more you know, I, I pride myself on being an empathetic counselor, can I bring that to myself? And that is how I have felt and experienced self-acceptance because I I, I say I' stopped, but <clears throat> I stopped doing it with my body and now there's just other areas where it's doing it. but I I stopped putting a an unrealistic standard that I had to meet in order to, Love myself, or be kind to myself, and so yeah. So I've I've really developed in, in in this is my area of expertise in body image, but now I'm finding needing to find acceptance in other areas and self acceptance in as a whole. It's it's a journey. It's not it's not a destination. So
0: that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Bree. Um, that made me have 10,000 questions that I want to ask you, but um, I think the place that we usually like to start is um, when was the first moment in your life or the first, and doesn't necessarily have to be narrowed down to one moment, but um, when did you first get the message from society or just from people around you? that something about you was not okay?
2: It's mm. a great question. I um, was a very confident kid. Uh, I was usually told I was very bossy. I didn't care about telling people what to do. I was very confident in that. So the first real moment that I remember feeling that something was wrong with me was when I was eight years old. And I had gone to the doctor to get a physical. And I remember not liking my doctor. She was very old. Her hands were always cold. Uh, Her personality was very cold. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable just through the whole process because I wasn't prepared for it. And at the end of the appointment, she uh, told my mom that she, referring to me she said she's too fat this is where she is on the bmi chart and this is and she's supposed to be all the way down here and then she looked at me and said you need to exercise and eat fruits and vegetables and nothing else and not reward yourself with dessert and i remember thinking like okay well i'm on the soccer team and i'm on the dance team so i move a lot and I don't even eat ice cream that often. Like, I'm—I did something bad. I don't know how I failed this test that I didn't even know that was here. But in that moment, I knew, oh, okay, this is—I'm something is wrong with me, and I have to fix it. And I remember, and I, I share this usually when I share this story, just to sort of uh, show the eight-year-old mind that I had. So when I went home that night and I was in the bath, I remember, I remember distinctly praying to God that he would do two things. I prayed that he would clean my room and that he would make me thin. Mm. And he did neither of those two things. <laughs> but just to show like my age of reasoning, right? Like I thought that that was something that could, could happen, right? Okay, I'm going to get out of the bathtub. I'm going to be thin and my room's going to be clean.
0: Mm-hmm. So, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so, how did that kind of evolve for you? That that experience? How did that sort of expand into your life after that moment when you were eight?
2: I think that was the first moment that i I really um, really became aware of my body and thinking and knowing it was bad. Uh, then there were other moments that confirmed it. So, as I got older, uh, kids would like bully me, and of course, the thing that they would go for is the obvious F word, um, fat, because I am in a larger body, and I was always bigger as a kid. And for me, my body size, I always felt like it was my Achilles heel. I had confidence and self esteem in so many areas of my life. I knew I was a great student. I knew I was a good singer. I loved acting. I was good at soccer. Like I was good at things that I put my mind to and I was a hard worker. And no matter how much I tried to change my body size, it was the only thing I couldn't do. And so it had become such a major source of shame because it was my, my greatest failure in life. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm wondering if you want me to expand on that more or if that was.
0: Yeah, I guess for me as a listener, I'm just thinking about how, this image of you as this sweet, um, innocent, smart, it sounds like really passionate child and how it sounds like you really internalized and rightfully so because I think it happens in different ways to all of us, but just how intense that is that you internalize these messages that somehow meant there was something wrong with you or that something was bad or that you failed. Mm. And um, I just think so many people can relate to that. And so I'm just wondering, um, obviously we want to get into a place in a little bit where we talk about how that has unfolded with you being the person that you are today as an activist and, helping people in so many different ways, um, to love and accept themselves. But I'm just curious, sometimes it's helpful to know about the dark night of the soul before getting there. And so just curious about, um, kind of from age eight, moving into your teen years and just kind of how that narrative of this, this means I'm a failure. My body means I'm a failure. Just curious how that unfolded for you.
2: Yeah, I, I think that in, in, introspectively, so I have I a background in, in eating disorder recovery uh, as a therapist, and I, I actually taught Introduction to Eating Disorders at a small college nearby, and I remember trying to figure out, I remember it was grieving me, to. I was like, I fit all of the markers for someone who's predisposed to an eating disorder, like perfectionist, uh you know, somebody who's, you know, either in a larger body or was afraid of being in a larger body, having that fat phobia, all these markers. And I couldn't figure out why, why I never developed one because I've been in a large body, but I never developed an eating disorder. And I knew that because I remember I would do these weight loss programs that were under the guise of health. And I would sit among people who were like, oh, I did X, Y, and Z behavior. And I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. I don't do that. And that again, at that commitment level, when I do something, I give it a hundred percent and quick tangent. I, I always used to say, I, I give it 110%. And my therapist at one point said, well, you can't give 110%. You can only give a hundred percent. That's all you can give. And
1: I'm like, oh.
2: So, so yeah. So into my teen years, I did have a, se- a sense of self-efficacy because I had confidence in other areas. But what, because of, and right, as as Becca and I, we, we lead with the two, I've had this innate need to please people. And so the messaging combined with wanting to please people, but also fearing the fat body that I lived in, I was afraid to take up space. And that really unfolded in my teen years. As I never wanted to make waves, I, I always just I'm just conflictive one, and I don't like to make people unhappy. But really, it was I didn't know there was space for my emotions, mm-hmm. and so I learned in that time when I would get angry, I would shut down. And so I, I I'll never forget there was a time that I went to I went out to eat with a family member, and I ordered uh, pasta, and they were like is that really what you want to order? Like, I'm, I'm really just concerned for you. And I, I, I shut down and I got really mad and I said, Nope, I'm not going to eat anything now. And then I was told, don't do this. Like you're, you're, you're ruining the whole meal. Like, let's just, you know, let's just talk about it. I just want to, you know, take care of you. And because I, I would suppress those emotions I would get these moments where I would just burst, and I I left the restaurant. I'm like 16 at this point. Walked out of the restaurant and started walking, and <laughs> like I can't drive, can't go anywhere. But I didn't feel like there was space for me to say, "Hey, the way you're bringing this up, the way you're talking about this, all of these things, is actually hurting me." And I don't. It's it. I know you're coming from a place of concern, but it's actually harming me because I'm. I'm right. A kid, I'm 16. And, and I think the, the, the bare part of this was there was a confirmation bias of, oh no, I noticed this and they're noticing it too. And so not only am I noticing my body change, but you are noticing my body change and having the same concerns that I do.
0: Wow. That's so, that's so powerful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I was thinking of so many different things as you were, as you were sharing. I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is just this idea of body diversity and how ridiculous it is that in our society there's this assumption that uh, a thin body is like a normal body that there aren't many different sizes and shapes and weights and. Um, and so it just feels like that moment that you had with that person. Um, was that a family member or a friend? I can't remember. A family it, member. Yeah. Um, it feels like just I'm imagining what that must have felt like to be a teenager and feel like I'm just living in my body. Like I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just ordering some food just like you are. And because I have a body that doesn't fit what society tells us uh, it's supposed to look like I am paying a price for this right now. And so I'm just curious, kind of like, I guess what your thoughts are about body diversity and maybe when that awareness of body diversity came into your story and how long it took for that awareness to, um, kind of enter. Mm. So, um, I,
2: I, didn't know, or didn't understand body diversity until m- much later in life, maybe fifteen years, maybe more. Um, <laughs> my cat is coming to greet us. <laughs> Sorry if she meows. So, I guess the trajectory for me, I didn't, I didn't realize that body diversity was a thing because i always just assumed, right? Like, okay, i i want to be healthy, right? So i hid body acceptance under the guise of health. Mm-hmm. And which is so ironic because close to that time of being 15, i had gotten blood work and i we had set off air, you know, they they were pretty confident they were going to find certain diagnoses and then when they didn't, They were just, well, keep doing what we're doing. But what I was doing was a really restrictive diet that Mm -hmm. wasn't sustainable. And so, but all of my, my lab work for the most part, I was healthy. So I was quote unquote healthy. My, Mm -hmm. my BMI just didn't match. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I started working at the eating disorder clinic, that's really where my cognitive dissonance came around. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say to myself, like, Hmm, I'm telling these girls, cause at the eating story center, it was only, it was only women that they can eat whatever they want. And it like that food doesn't like one, one meal doesn't impact your body size. Yet I was actively avoiding certain foods mm-hmm. on whatever diet I was currently on. And I remember there were just lots of moments of cognitive dissonance. And so I, I'd, one of the things I often encourage my clients to do is to do the thing that scares them Mm. and do it, like do it afraid, do it scared and do it fat because there's a lot of times in our mind where we create this rule that I can't do this until, and it's not true. And so one of the things that I was terrified of doing was going on vacation because I thought, Oh my goodness, what if, what if my, body doesn't fit in the airplane? What if I can't keep up on the, you know, excursion we do, whatever the case may be. And so as a graduation gift to myself, a friend and and, and I went um, on a, uh, we went to a, like a resort and in in the DR. And I remember seeing so many different types of body sizes. Like I had expected, oh my gosh, it's only, it's going to be all, and my friend is small. And, and, and so I just assumed I'm going to see all small bodied people here. And it just wasn't true. There were people of all sizes on their vacation, interracial, you know, just, there was so, there was so much diversity. And I was like, maybe I am not even aware of how much body diversity there is. And so I learned about Health at Every Size, much later than I would like to admit. I learned about it in 2018. It was May 2018, so not that long ago. So between 2016 and 2018, I had done a lot of work around recognizing how much emphasis we put on on our bodies. Actually, maybe before then, 2015, I just was revisiting a journal that I wrote. And how I was like, I I need to do something different. Like I have hated my body and I'm not hating it into submission. So I, I want to feel peace. I want to feel something different. And I want to love my body. I had always thought loving my body coincided with liking how it looked. And so between 2015 through 2018, I always felt, I was like, something's missing. I know I want to do this work. I know I want to do this work, but something doesn't align with me. And so... Uh, I had a uh, part of my story is that I had had the lap band weight loss surgery when I was 19 years old, which I'm sure we can get into here. Um, but I had the band removed six years later. And I remember asking the doctor to remove the band and the doctor was like, okay, well, what surgery do you want to do next? And I said, no, no, I don't want to do a surgery. I don't want any more surgery. I don't need to do surgery. I don't believe that my body size is indicative of my health. I'm sorry, not my health habits, but what I'm eating. And, uh, she basically said to me, okay, well, I'm going to tell you, you are going to gain weight if you don't, if you don't pick another surgery. And I set off to prove her wrong. And I did one final diet and that I hit dieting rock bottom. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And there were these moments that I was like, oh, man, I, I, I was a nanny in grad school and I, I would watch the mom eat different food than her kids. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to just be able to be present with the people in my life and eat the food that's there. The same advice might you, that I give to the clients that are struggling with eating disorders. Yet I'm doing something different because I'm in a large body. And so I learned about health at every size at the end of or at the in the summer of 2018. And that was when I started to realize when you stop being critical of larger bodies as being bad, you start to notice there's a lot of different people in a lot of different sizes. And just like we explained to kids, right, the um, pumpkins, there are so many different kinds and shapes of pumpkins there's not one's eyes. There are many different types of dogs, right? We would never expect a, a pit bull to look like a chihuahua. So why do we put that expectation on ourselves? And it was, for me, health at every size and intuitive eating was sort of the shift that I needed to identify my own body acceptance and body diversity.
0: Can you, just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with health at every size, just kind of give a little bit of a um, synopsis and background mm-hmm. as to what it is, and then also like how it came into your life.
2: Yeah. So, at its core, the concept of health at every size is that everybody, every single person in their body has the right to pursue health habits, regardless of what size their body is in. And so, for me, that was empowering because I I always said that I felt like I was healthy except for my body, my, my, my BMI. And I remember being in therapy and telling my, my, my therapist that I just, you know, I was on this diet and I just wanted to be healthy. And she asked me, what does health mean to you? And I said something along the lines of, I imagine health is not feeling out of control of food. Um, eating vegetables, and exercising daily. And at the time I was already doing those things. And she was like, oh, so you are healthy. And I said, no, I also need to be thin. And Okay. Well, how, like how thin, what's the marker. And so there was just this unawareness around this belief system of health means thin. And so yeah, health at every size. Again, I and I say at its core because it's so much more than that. And there are there are tons of resources on the fat positivity and body positivity movement, starting really as a social justice movement. That it is inclusion for all body types, not just fat bodies, but um, bodies with disabilities and and black bodies and marginalized bodies and uh, you know every every uh, marginalized community and to see that represented. And so I, I, I'll never forget. I had this moment in this journey where I'm, you know, I was practicing intuitive eating and it was that summer of 2018 when I was at a grocery store and I just took notice of the body diversity. And I'm like, it just felt like I was waking up to the world for the first time because the expectation, right? The thing that we see in media or uh, in magazines or, You know, when you put in a Google search, right, of if you put in fat bodies into Google, you get a lot of people who look sad about being in a large body. If you put body positive in, there are now more references of people in bigger bodies living their best life. So for me, taking a health at every size approach is the least harmful and the most helpful for those looking... To heal their relationship with their body.
1: Can I say? Can I add to that, Free? Please. I I like love it, and I wish I could record that and and play it for every human ever. But I mean, we are recording this, so we can we can play it for some people. <laughs> you know, I think that um, I I think what I love about health at every size is it's this this component of critical awareness that like. Right. Challenges scientific and cultural assumptions. Notice I didn't say scientific fact, right? Because I think that's the crazy piece of it. Is like the research is for health at every size. The research is not for the weight loss industry. Like the it's, it's weight loss and pursuing this an ideal is just not um, scientifically viable, right? Um, and and I think the other people is it, it the this. this this challenge to scientific and cultural assumption, like allows people to value their own body knowledge, like what you did in with your therapist, who's like, "Well, you are healthy, <laughs> right?" It's like, "Can I be in tune with that, right?" And and that's a choice to to pursue health, and like your lived experience, and and I think the other piece is it shows that um, when we're doing the opposite of health at every size, we're doing harm, right? Like. Yes huge harm in that, um, you know, oppression is a health hazard, right? Yeah. So when we look at like, when people are like, but what about health? That's like always the argument. And I'm like, but what about oppression? Because that is the biggest indicator for like, <laughs> right? So I just, I for for death and, and illness, um, you know, and those are the things we should be caring about. And yeah. I just wanted to add to your definition of health at every size, because what you said was beautiful. Um, And I'll
2: just add to that too, is I, what I realized is how much we take the crumbs of commentaries of other people and repeat them without having any clue that it's not factual. So for example, uh, part of my, my journey with intuitive eating, I remember asking my dietitian, okay, so I shouldn't eat after a certain time. And she was like, no, that's not true. That you can't eat past certain She's Like if you're hungry, then you eat. And I'm like, but won't that make me gain weight? She was like, No, that's not that's not true. And that was just a fact that was repeated over and over and over again. And so I repeated it. And there's so many things like that. And I think health that's one of those things. So when I'm when I try to talk to people about health at every size, and their argument is, "What about health?" I ask them. Define health. What does health mean? If health to you is being in a small body, then that's your definition of health. But I think it's a very narrow definition if it only includes body size. Because for me, at my smallest body size, I was emotionally and mentally distraught. And now in my largest body, I have never taken better care of myself than I do or I am right now. And my mental health is better than it has been. And I think we downplay other parts of, of health. And I think that Health and Every Size actually takes a holistic approach to health rather than just BMI.
1: Yeah. Do you have something? The there? Yeah, I do. Okay, you go. But I'm going to bring us back to Bree's story. Do you have a question about this? Mm. I can ask it later. I won't lose it. Okay. okay. So, Brie, you were saying that um, you, you coped by, like, shrinking yourself and not taking up space emotionally, especially. Um, and then, you know, I've heard a little bit about how you began to wake up to the world, right? And so I'm curious if you could connect those things. So then what happened to how you were coping previously? So if you were coping previously by shrinking yourself and now you're realizing, like, wait a minute, something isn't wrong with me maybe some, maybe I'm not the problem. What, what shifts for you?
2: So part of my journey, and I don't actually think I talk about this. I've never talked about this and it's such a pinnacle part of my story, but similarly to that feeling I described when I was 16, that I didn't know how to take up space in the world that I internalized so much. And when I started learning about, health at every size, and making peace with my body, I became acutely aware of how much my body was holding in. And I, I describe it like feeling really raw and vulnerable, that tears were just always at the surface. And I remember uh, at the time I was working with a therapist and I, I had never been connected to, to anxiety before. I think I have anxiety. I think I have high levels of anxiety that I just, I didn't even know. I I shared before we we came on that I was just used to holding it in. And so that's usually my biggest indication of when I'm feeling anxious is clenching my my jaw or holding my breath. I do that during hard things. And so that that first moment of noticing, ooh, that's disproportionate was I went to go find a parking spot and I couldn't find one. And my anxiety shot up to like an eight and I couldn't breathe. And I said, "Breathe. this is not, this, this is not a big deal. We do not need to be at an eight because you can't find parking. And it almost had just been normalized for me at that point that I was just an anxious person. And I think that I used dieting as a way to cope um, with my anxiety because it was the thing I could control. That if I could control my body size or my mind was so consumed with numbers and food and ingredients that I didn't have time to realize that I wasn't really living my life. I was just surviving. And when I gave up dieting, there was a lot of grief there was a lot of grief for myself because I I recognized what I was saying goodbye to. I was saying goodbye to the community of dieting. Uh, I had made lots of friends through dieting and connections and and right things that as human beings we crave. I was I was grieving structure and order. I was grieving the thin ideal. I was grieving the fact that I was never going to have the after body, the body that society celebrates. The, the I was never going to be an after photo. And through my grief, and, and, and something I share often is I do have a very real life example of grief. And it taught me that many times we're afraid to experience the grief because we're afraid it's not going to end. We're mm-hmm. afraid that if we go into the depths of grief, we're going to get stuck there. But emotions don't work that way, right? Sometimes we feel... Great, and then sometimes we feel low, but we move through the emotion. Grief often feels unfamiliar. And so I would say what what's shifted for me? Everything. I have so many coping skills now that I didn't even know that I needed. One of them, taking medication for my anxiety, normalizing taking medication, that it's okay. It's okay that that part of my brain that's supposed to have function and reasoning is in a state a state of uh, flight or fright, right? So it just, it can't do anything. Um, practicing more mindfulness and coping skills like deep breathing. I used to say, I remember I went into therapy once and my therapist was like, why don't we take a deep breath? I'm like, deep breathing, deep breathing doesn't work for me. (laughs) And what I found is it doesn't work if you don't actually practice it, right? If you're just doing it in times of distress, it's not going to help you And so now having a daily practice of deep breathing and having a diaphragmatic breath that when I'm feeling moments of anxiety, I'm like, oh, I have, I have a resource that I can, I can use. And, uh, and then I think also just finding, finding community, finding people who are also not pursuing dieting has been the biggest antidote to coping with the isolation of not dieting. Can break.
0: Wow. That is, I'm just listening to you and I'm just noticing my whole body is relaxing and just feeling, um, Oh, it makes me like, kind of want to tear up a little bit. Like what it would have been like for me as um, a kid or as a teenager to be able to hear your story Um And just how powerful it is to be speaking with someone who has overcome so much oppression Mm -hmm. and um, really reclaimed themselves and has done the work. It's just, it's really inspiring. Um, And I think when we truly love and accept ourselves, we heal... (laughs) we heal the world because we give other people permission to love and accept themselves. So I'm not wrapping people. up. What? Sorry. I'd what did you to,
2: say? I'd love to read a quote for you. Oh, please, please. So this one's uh, by one of my favorites. And I, I anticipate joyfully the day that Brene Brown accepts health at every size because we cannot talk about body acceptance or self acceptance without talking about shame. And she says that belonging is the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us because this yearning is so primal. We often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic imperfect perfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance.
0: Hmm. chills. (laughs) Um, yeah. Thank you again for sharing that. And I, um, I was just thinking as you were talking and I was mentioning this to Becca, um, before we, we started recording today that it's been really interesting for me on a personal level, because, um, I've gotten to a place where I, I have a lot of acceptance around my own body, but I've noticed um, during COVID there's been this kind of nagging uh, voice in my own head that's had a lot of messages that feel really old to me, like from my teen years um, and even early 20s around what my body is supposed to look like. And I wondered sort of um, – in your own journey, if you have times where those old voices or those old narratives um, show up. Uh, So that's my first question. And then the second one is, what are your thoughts surrounding kind of the connection between um, COVID and sort of body image stuff for people? Um, And have you been seeing that in your own work at all?
2: Yeah. So two really great questions. So the first is absolutely, I still hear and experience those 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 voices. Something that I, I do for my listeners is I'll often do a hot seat coaching on Instagram of myself, coaching myself through a bad body image thought. Because one, I want to normalize mm-hmm. that even body image with Brie,
1: mm-hmm.
2: a body image expert still struggles with body image sometimes but it's not about my body it's about my belief systems about my body and the more we can access the belief systems the less grievances we have with our body and so and then the other part of this is i think covid has brought about more obsession about bodies i think for for many reasons but one i think because we don't have the same accessibility that we always do of being able to leave our house or, you know, uh, go to the, maybe go to the gym or whatever the case may be that we would have normally done. I think it's one thing that feels like it's in our control. I think two, we are not comparing ourselves as much to other people, but to older versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the most toxic comparison of well, it was just even this, this few months ago, right. I was able to do this and now I'm not. And I did that myself. And I started doing PT because I was having some mobility issues, which I scapegoated my body. I said, it's because of my, my fat body. And my PT was like, no, it's probably because now you're sitting all day at a computer. Whereas before you were out and doing different things. And I was like, oh, um and and then three. Uh, <laughs> I think the dieting industry recognizes the profits that can be made from from this as well. And I often contribute, and this isn't my own idea, but that diet culture is like a cult that we have been indoctrinated into, and it's it's, you only realize it when you leave. And you're like, wow, I used to say that. I used to do that. That's not normal. And now that I've left, I still see wounds where I'm like, "Ooh, that's where that old belief system is. So even for example, I, I have, I only went on one date during COVID because one, I hate online dating. And then two, I was like, after I went on that, I was like, I'm not doing that again.
1: That <laughs> was a lot of work <laughs> emotionally.
2: I, I'm like, no, no, I care. I like my time too much. <laughs> but so then just a couple of days ago, I was having a bad body image day around not feeling sexy. And that was a, that was totally an old wound because I remember journaling about it in 2015. So that's when I went back to my journal and I realized, okay, what's the belief system? The belief system started... Not because I don't think that fat bodies can be sexy, which I did in 2015. It was right now I was, the belief system it was attached to was, I don't believe someone's going to find my fat body sexy. So not that fat bodies can't be sexy, but that I was feeling a little blue about my singleness. And as soon as I acknowledged it, I was like, oh, so now let me think about what is in my power and control. Mm. And I think, want to date if I wanted to. I don't want to. <laughs> but. Acknowledging that thought, and I, I wrote it down on a post-it note, um, that's an old thought pattern that doesn't serve you anymore. Ooh. That's an old thought pattern that no longer serves you.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do you have something, Becca? Okay. It just makes me think about how often our thought patterns are gui- disguising a need, like an unmet need that we have. And how we have to do this like excavating process
1: that often involves just
0: sitting with ourselves.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. And, hold on. Hold on. Sarah, Sarah, can you hold your thoughts? Yes, you yes. like, Bree and I just went like this when you, when Sarah said excavating, uh-huh. I don't think Sarah knows this about Bree. Whoa. I
0: don't know anything about that. Should what, I say what, what don't I know?
1: Tell mm-hmm. me. your thought that you had? Yes, I'm, I'm holding it. Hold I'm it. Please, please it don't, it don't let know. it go. Seriously, Brie just had herself drawn as Indiana Jones. If you go to her body image with Brie profile, uh-huh. I will let you expand on it.
2: Because I, I say that body image is an archaeological dig.
1: Whoa.
2: <laughs> because people think that body image is like a destination and then we get there and it's check. And I say, no, 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 no. It's a dig and we keep going deeper. Okay, what's what's underneath that? And and so when you said excavating, I said, "Oh, yes.
0: oh my gosh, that was just a oh wild, crazy! That is so cool." And you said,
2: and and then you said something else too about sitting in it. The other thing I talk about is sitting in the suck. Uh
0: huh. Mm-hmm.
2: That this is body grief mm-hmm. because what happens is providers do one of two things: we either Ask people in a super disordered way, well, what can we change, right? If you're feeling uncomfortable in your body, well, like, you know, can can you exercise? Can you eat differently? Super disordered. We won't even go into that one. The other thing that we do is we try to move too quickly to the reframe. Mm -hmm. And we are afraid to sit in the suck of someone's body discomfort, probably because we haven't done it ourselves Mm -hmm. or because we don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And we try to bypass. The grief and go straight to the reframe,
1: mm-hmm. but you can't do that mm-hmm.
2: because the reframe is in the grief. Mm-hmm. So sorry, we
1: we in my face was just no, like,
0: don't no, sorry. <laughs> that is that is so powerful and so beautiful, and yeah, it's it's so interesting because it almost feels like in the way that you're talking about it, which makes me feel excited personally. Like when those triggers come up or when those old narratives start pumping through the brain. It's like, all right, there's a nugget here. There's something that maybe I haven't healed or something old that I haven't looked at that's still running the show. And so how do I, how do I access that?
2: Absolutely. And so that's basically what I'll do with my, with my hot seat coaching is I say, okay, well, here's the thought. Let's get, let's get, uh, observant. Let's get critical. Like, uh, critically observant rather than just criticizing it or Mm -hmm. judging it because this is the other thing that happens is then when you're in this space of health at every size now do you not only feel bad about your body image but then you feel bad about not being body positive
0: (laughs) that happened to me the other day I was like I can my mind is exploding like I don't I'm feeling things I don't agree with so
2: yeah, <laughs> and that's, but that's okay, right? It's just that observant, uh, like, oh, that's an old thought pattern. Oh no, that's not, we don't believe that anymore. And a question that I, I, I have little notes all over the place. So some of the questions I ask is what is the story I'm telling myself, mm-hmm. right? So when that thought comes up, what's the narrative here? And if that narrative then comes to, oh, no one's going to find you attractive in, mm-hmm. in a, a fat body follow up question does that thought align with my values and i think if you if you really sit and do some value work and you identify what values are important to you most people are not going to my cat's yelling um are not going to acknowledge that thinness is an important value for them or aesthetics is an important value for them relationships are an important value for them empathy is an important value for them Respect our important values. And so bringing people back to character and values as opposed to aesthetics, which is what diet culture does, is it brings you back to looking and fitting the part, which that fitting in is a hollow substitution for the actual acceptance of who you are.
0: So powerful.
1: Oh my gosh. What
0: are you thinking, Becca?
1: But I could listen to Bree talk about this all day. Same. <laughs> um, and, it, I could and talk it, about this all day. It's interesting. This is, you know, for our listeners, this is the first time Sarah and I have recorded with a guest um, and not been in the same place because we are observing our state's current rules about households not joining, which we're sad, but also trying to stay healthy. But um, so, but Sarah and I have like given each other, I think. I can need to check that out like looks a few times for so many, for so many different reasons, mm-hmm. um, because, because I think your story is unique to you, Brie. And it also, I think just touches both of us because it touches both of our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, and, and, and it's interesting, Brie, myself and Sarah are all in three very different bodies. Mm-hmm. We're all in very different heights. We all have different bodies. We all have different, body diversity and and this feels so like I've gotten goosebumps I've been in tears during this conversation um I think Sarah and I maybe I think you were laughing when Brie said she realized she had anxiety uh, yes I was <laughs> because that's a realization that I was was that why you were laughing yes because I only recently realized I had anxiety too and it was really aligned with my story but I just I'm just really grateful for your voice Bree. Oh. um and Thank you
2: for your story. And I'll just add to that too. Of I think that, especially, I, I think I can contribute it to our enneagram. But but I'm I'm often an overachiever. Like I'm an overfunctioner to a fault. So it I never like I had I I've counseled clients with anxiety, and I was like, but mine doesn't look like theirs, mm-hmm. and and that's it's stigmatizing even in and of itself. Of anxiety doesn't have a look. Neither does health mental health, physical health, Mm -hmm. that it can look different for each person. Mm -hmm. It's not a cookie cutter.
0: Totally. Yeah. And just one last thing that's coming up for me that I just want to name. It's so interesting. I keep having this, like this thought that's like, oh, thank God, we got to have this conversation uh, this week, number one, because it just feels so healing to listen to you. Um, but number two, it's, I, I mentioned this earlier. I wish that I personally could have met someone like you and I was at a much younger age and it brings up grief of like, gosh, life could have been so different if I had, um, loved and accepted my body and so I'm just thinking as I'm feeling that, as we're talking, just that, you know, this work is hard. It's hard because like you were saying, you know, feeling that grief and being willing to sit in it and have the regret that comes with time that, that we maybe didn't get to spend in the way we would have wished we could have spent it when we were worrying about our bodies or not connecting with people because I should speak for myself, not connecting with people because I'm so worried about my body, things like that. Um, You know, it's just, it's so liberating to think about a world in which that doesn't exist. And also um, it it does bring up grief to really look at it. So um, just wanting to acknowledge that for people that might be starting this journey or listening to this podcast and thinking about, thinking about starting this journey Or for people that have already been down this path, I think it's just um, something that I wanted to name.
2: And a a word to that, right? And not in an attempt to rush the grief process, because no matter where you are, we can sit with you there. And that's exactly like, that's where you are. And we're going to meet you there rather than where, you know, we want you to be. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is known very well for the stages of grief supposedly I need to do, I need to do more research on this, but is they had done research into adding another stage to grief, mm. which is finding, finding meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And so when I started this journey, it was, it was very dark. It was very bleak. I remember being in therapy and my, my therapist said, I I would describe you as hopeless. Like I, I, it's almost like a depression in the area of body image. There was no light at the end of the tunnel that unless my body changed, I wasn't going to accept my body. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm here, Mm -hmm. if I I just believe like this, I'm living my purpose Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make the pain that I experienced less painful. It's just given me meaning. And I believe in the epigenetics and the generational ties and the, the toxic health patterns or, or belief systems that have been in my family, that it's going to end with me, that it's going to stop at my line.
1: (laughs) Again.
0: Oh my gosh. I know.
2: So I hope that brings solace and, and right in therapy, DVT therapy, we can hold two thoughts at the same time. So it can suck and it can also end with you and be powerful. And and it's tough work. And, and uh, if I could, I would love to share one more example of um, hope. I've, I've shared this a couple of times on my podcast. I, I had a, a client once who really struggled with depression and I would always try to bring her back to hope, right? Like, where's the hope? And she, she, and she wanted to be there. And I remember one night I was too lazy to turn the, the bathroom light on. I was like half asleep. So I stumble into the bathroom. It's the middle of the night and I sit down on the toilet. And the only light that's I can see is coming from the hallway. And as I open my eyes, I'm acutely aware of how dark it is in the room. Like I couldn't see anything. I was scared for a moment because I was like, whoa, like I don't, I'm not even sure spatially what's happening. And it took some time for my eyes to adjust. And then the only light I could see was just this little gleam of light coming out from under the door. And in that moment, I realized, oh, that's hope. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, the light is on the other side of the door, if all you can see and focus on is just a little sliver, hold on to it. And those of us who are in that hope, who are standing there, we will wait patiently for you because when you're ready, your eyes will adjust. You will get, you will be able to get there. You don't need to look for the whole bright room. Just look for a little sliver. Mm.
0: So beautiful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Brie. Thank you for having me. This has
2: been so great.
0: Yeah. Well, sorry. Can I just say one quick thing? I just think it's cool because Becca always ends with um, an encouragement. She always says an encouragement to our listeners and it feels like you were telepathic and you just gave all of our listeners the encouragement before Becca gave you the prompt. So um
1: yeah, go ahead Becca. I, I interrupted what you nope, were going to say. I was say. literally gonna say the same thing. We are all on the same wavelength. <laughs> There's just been a lot of intuitive process between the three of us. It's kind of interesting. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So good synchronicity. Yeah. So so I mean I know you just ended with that and then we did so if you want to, um, not say it again, but if you're leaving our listeners with an encouragement, what would you say?
2: My encouragement would be that no matter where you are is the right place to be. Mm. And that criticism will not breed the results that you need love, patience, and empathy will. And I know for myself, some of the thought traps I would get stuck in is I feel like, you know, in like a video game, when you level up and then you die, and then you have to start over again. (laughs) Sometimes body image work feels that way where I'm like, I got here and now I'm back here. How did I get back here? But because you've done it, you're going to get right back where you started. So Mm -hmm. no matter where you are, no matter what levels you get to, no matter how far back you fall, you will you will get back to that place. I promise you.
0: That's amazing. Where, where can our listeners find you, Brie?
2: Come hang out with me on Instagram, Body Image with Brie.
0: And you have a podcast too, right?
2: I do have a podcast, Body Image with Brie the
0: podcast. Okay, cool. So your podcast or your Instagram? Yes. Awesome.
1: All right. Thanks for being with
0: us. Signing off. This was just so special. Thank you for everything you shared. Bye.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Hi, it's Sarah
1: and Becca again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can tune in on your favorite podcast player every other Monday to hear us talk with special guests about self-acceptance, self-love, and self-growth. See you in a few weeks.